Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm Connor Boyle. Coming up on the show, John Preston. The author and journalist discusses storytelling for both page and screen and how he wrote his most recent book, an award-winning biography of the infamous media magnet, Robert Maxwell. Today's host is the broadcaster and journalist, Mark Mardell, former North America editor, Europe editor, and chief political correspondent for the BBC. He spoke with John last year about the book. Here's Mark with more. I'm delighted to introduce our guest today, John Preston, the author of several novels and works of non-fiction, among them The Dig, recently made into a wonderful film by Netflix, and The Very English Scandal on the Jeremy Thorpe Affair, again, a marvellous TV series. He's now written The Fall, The Mystery of Robert Maxwell. Welcome, John. Thank you very much. Why did you want to write about Maxwell? Well, I'd always been fascinated by Maxwell. And he was a kind of unavoidable presence if he worked in Fleet Street in the late 80s in particular. And I would always been kind of very taken by the fact that he seemed to be um, both ridiculed and feared, often by the same people. And even what comparatively little I knew about him at the time, it seemed to me that there aren't that many people who lead really kind of big technicolour lives and whatever one may think of Maxwell his was unquestionably very big and and very colourful. A huge figure in every way. Yes and I suppose I also felt that you know it's 30 years since he died and if he's remembered he's probably still remembered as the kind of embodiment of corporate villainy and I wanted to examine that and see if he was as much of a kind of pantomime villain as history has depicted him as. And he's undergoing a bit of a revival at the moment. There's not only your book, but there's two podcasts, perhaps because of his daughter, Jelaine. Yeah, I'm not sure I'd call it a revival, but yes. Well, I'm not him personally, but uh, <laughs> renewed interest, shall we say. Yeah. Now, what was his relationship with Jelaine like? His relationship with all his children was pretty tricky. Uh, I mean, he wasn't the sort of father you would run to if you were in search of succour and comfort. Uh, Maxwell and his wife Betty had nine children, two of whom died. Um, Ghislaine herself was born in the same week that Michael, the oldest son, was very badly injured in a car crash. And uh, he was then in a coma for the next seven years before he died. And actually, it's Michael's accident that really is is the kind of tipping point from where, the, from where the Maxwell has hitherto been quite a happy family, 
and things start to fall apart. And Ghislaine's own childhood was, I think, very much overshadowed by this pall of gloom that just hung over the family um, as a result of Michael's accident. I mean, the whole book is fascinating, but but where it starts is what I knew very little about, his, his early background. Tell us, take us back to that little village where he was born. Well, he was born in this dirt poor village in the west of what was then Czechoslovakia. Uh, it had a high Jewish population. The Ma- Maxwell's own family was Jewish. Uh, he was one of seven children. Maxwell set off to essentially seek his fortune when he was about 15. And while he was away, three of his siblings, both his parents and his grandfather all died in Auschwitz. And that, in many respects, is the kind of prism through which you have to see Maxwell's life. The poverty and the... the poverty, but the, the, the awful tragedy of what happened to his family. And how did that drive him, then, do you think? Well, that's a very good question. It's a hard question to answer. I mean, Maxwell himself denied being Jewish when he first came to the UK. He plumped for this rather Scottish-sounding name with absolutely no Semitic connotations to it at all. Um And in many respects, that was probably quite a prudent thing to do because there was a lot of anti-Semitism around at the time, even in the UK. I think that he had attempted to to flee his background and to leave it behind him. But you have this strange sense that the older he becomes, the more the past seems to kind of snap at his heels, almost, as it were, mocking him for what he'd achieved and saying, you know, you can't escape who you were. And he does embrace his Judaism rather belatedly, but actually that doesn't bring him much uh, in the way of comfort. And and it sort of drives another wedge between him and his wife. I mean, there were already quite a a number of wedges by then, but it was possibly the one that that actually finished off their marriage for good. But in the early days, although there are darker elements, it almost reads like a boy's own adventure. Yes, it is. Yeah, it is. I mean, you know, Maxwell had changed his name four times by the time he was 23. He showed enormous bravery during the war. I mean, he won the Military Cross, which only won down from the the Victoria Cross. But he'd also um, shot the mayor of a small town in France in cold blood in the the middle of the town square to try and deter anybody from um, uh, taking up arms against the British. Uh, he quite possibly shot a number of unarmed German soldiers who may indeed actually have surrendered. Um, so there was a very, very cold-blooded, ruthless side to Maxwell. But as you say, there was this extraordinary boy's own side as well. And when he becomes a spy in post-war Berlin... He's like a kind of Harry Lyme figure from The Third Man, really, kind of moving from one occupied zone to the other, passing himself effortlessly off as a native in each zone. I want to get back to that, but uh, what did you make of that you, that callousness? I mean, what do you think drove that as much as you can tell? Because in some ways you can say it's awful and very un-British, but he'd lived and seen things that a lot of British soldiers wouldn't have seen. Yes, I mean, I think one's got to be careful about tracing, you know, his ruthlessness back um, directly to what happened to his family. I mean, it's conceivable. He could have been even more ruthless if it hadn't happened. Um, 
Uh, you know, but it did, I think, it gave him an overwhelming sense that people were out to grind him into the dust and he had to grind them into the dust before they got the upper hand. So really all his human relations were unbelievably adversarial. I mean, you know, basically they involved him locking horns with someone. And he was constantly reinventing himself, as you said, a number of names, and you mentioned the Berlin period. Well, was it then that he developed this... I mean, extraordinary accent. Um, for those who don't know, I mean, it's very plummy, very English, or maybe upper-class Scottish accent, which, of course, I mean, he obviously was not born with in any sense. No, he'd, he'd started off listening to Winston Churchill's speeches on the radio on the troop ship coming over to, um, to England. And he didn't, by this point, actually understand a word of English. But he was an astoundingly good mimic, or he was like, it was more like sort of, you know, had a capacity to just kind of soak up languages. So when he did learn English, he kind of layered on top of it this sort of Churchillian rump, sort of thick Churchillian cadences. So yes, he, he did have this kind of booming treacly voice. And it was only very occasionally that he would come up with these sort of odd malapropisms. That, that, and they were the only clues, really, that English wasn't his first language. Can you give us the examples? I can't quite remember from the yeah, book There's now. one say... He, <laughs> made me laugh out loud, I remember. Absolute bafflement. He would say, you can't change toads in midstream. <laughs> um, and uh, I think it was something like... They have shut the horse after the stable door has bolted, or something like that, anyway. Maybe mirror group pensioners should have remembered you can't change toads in the middle of a stream. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you, so we already have war hero, war criminal, perhaps spy? Yes, he was definitely a spy. He, um, I mean, he was a yeah, brilliant asset for British intelligence at the end of the war, because... Uh, by this point, he spoke six or seven languages fluently, and he had this kind of natural bent for subterfuge. Um, I mean, as we talked about, he changed his name a lot, but he also, would, you know, he liked to change his appearance and and just kind of sneak about under the radar. He was fantastically good at doing deals, and the British soon learnt not to uh, ask too many questions about how he managed to keep um, this journal that he was in charge of, which was designed to reintroduce Berliners to the virtues of democracy. Maxwell essentially kept the whole thing going single-handedly and was doing deals to get, you know, printing ink and, and uh, newspaper and everything like this. And no one quite knew how he did it. But, you know, he had grown up selling trinkets when he was from the age of 12 in this in his town the village where he grew up in so i mean he did have this kind of extraordinary bent for salesmanship and that's where his money first came from yeah essentially what had happened was that for years maxwell when he'd come to england and for a time he was put to work breaking rocks in a quarry in uh, in south wales and he would lie awake at night and think to himself what I really want more than anything else is to get hold of a commodity that I can obtain for next to nothing that's going to be in huge demand after the war. And he happened to be in Berlin in 1946 one day, and this man came to see him, who was the largest publisher of scientific journals in Germany, who said, look, I've got this terrible problem because no one has published any of my journals during the war. I've got this colossal mountain of stuff. Can you help me? 
And Maxwell's first instinct was to kick him out because that was essentially Maxwell's first instinct with anybody. And then he thought to himself, hold on, no, maybe I can help this man. And out of nowhere, the answer to what he'd always wanted had just landed in his lap. And the commodity was knowledge. And none of the academics who'd written all this stuff expected to be paid much or indeed anything for it and he could lock libraries in for contracts and went on for years and years and years to buy all these journals so they turned into this fantastic cash cow and provided him with the cornerstone of what then became his publishing empire and then was it encyclopedias next yeah, then he got into encyclopedias same same sort of thing of course where you could yeah you would sign a contract in advance that you'd be locked into for about a decade while these endless volumes of encyclopedias would land on your doorstep. Um, but that was another cash cow. And in, and, and in post-war Europe, there was a huge amount of money sloshing around to basically get academic institutions and libraries and things like that up and running again. And he was a great beneficiary of that. And it seemed that uh, as his power and wealth grows, he becomes less amusingly bumptious and more more sinister, is that right? Or? I think that it is true, yes. I mean, you know, let's just say hypothetically Maxwell had died in 1961 instead of 1991. He probably, I mean, he would have been remembered in, in much, much more different terms. I mean, you know, he was the world's largest publisher of scientific manuscripts, of journals rather. And although, you know, he was in it for the money, as it were, he wasn't completely lacking in some sort of spark of ideology. He took a great interest in the research that he published and actually paved the way for a number of really important discoveries in medicine, chemistry, biology, and so on. But then it's as if the story of Maxwell's life in many respects is a kind of terrible morality tale of someone for whom nothing was ever enough. Mm. So he becomes obsessed with owning a newspaper and it's that that brings him into the orbit of Rupert Murdoch. And the two of them are engaged in this kind of titanic struggle for almost 30 years. And it's, it's the thing that really sows the seed for Maxwell's financial downfall and his kind of physical and mental di di disintegration as well. And such a fascinating, curious relationship in some ways... Both of them outsiders, both hated by some people, both seen as crude and rule breakers. But, but Murdoch, well, you tell me, but it seems he's much colder, much more strategic. Maxwell's more driven by passions. and I think that's true. I mean, as far as Murdoch was concerned, Maxwell was this kind of constant irritant that he could never quite manage to brush off. And it, it absolutely infuriated Murdoch that his name was constantly being mentioned in the same breath as Maxwell. And the fact they shared the same initials drove him even more nuts. <laughs> um, and, you know, Maxwell came to see Murdoch as his nemesis and felt that, he was, that Murdoch was out to thwart Maxwell every turn. Um, Murdoch always claimed it was he said when I went to interview him he said oh you know it was always personal with Maxwell and it was never personal with me I don't entirely believe that I think it was quite personal um, with Murdoch but I don't think that Maxwell got under his skin to the extent that Murdoch got under Maxwell's skin Did 
So I got the impression from the book that Murdoch uh, felt a sort of contempt for Maxwell. Yeah, I think that's true. I think that's true, particularly when Maxwell takes over the mirror and, you know, he starts putting pictures of himself all over the paper. And uh, that um, Murdoch uh, kind of detested that. And as he said, you know... Um, you know, you never see my photograph in my newspapers, which actually is true. And he's a much more... You know, Murdoch kind of belongs behind the arras, as it were, whereas, you know, Maxwell has to be centre stage everywhere. But owning these two great tabloid newspapers made them not only obvious rivals commercially, but political rivals as well. Yeah, because, I mean, I think it was Alan Bennett who said that the recent past is the most boring period of all. And, and then you kind of go back a bit further and you tilt over this indefinable point and it becomes history. And then it does become more interesting, particularly if there's a big contrast between the way we live now and the way we lived then. And in the case of a very English scandal, the big difference, of course, was attitudes to homosexuality. I and mean, the whole thing would never have happened if the stigma against homosexuality hadn't been so great. And with Maxwell, the difference really is the way in which power was exercised. Because Maxwell and Murdoch, when Maxwell buys the Mirror in 84, they are the two great power brokers in British politics. You know, Murdoch controls the sun. Conservatives know that uh, you know, if they're going to be, stay in power to be re-elected, they have to have the support of the sun. Same thing is true with the Labour Party and the Mirror, which turned out it was a complete nightmare for Neil Kinnock. The difference... I suppose the key difference between the two of them is that Murdoch very much had his own political ideology, whereas Maxwell didn't really. I mean, he was constantly bending Neil Kinnock's ear, but he wasn't specifically trying to get him to change policy. He was really just driven much more by expediency, I think, in that respect. And while Murdoch has been a guest, I'm sure Maxwell was of number 10 as well many times, but as well, Murdoch, as you say, uh, exercises power from behind the arras. Maxwell actually did become an MP. Maxwell did become an MP and indeed was hell-bent on becoming Prime Minister at one stage. Uh, I mean, it was an ambition that no one took particularly seriously apart from himself. And he was the uh, Labour MP for Buckingham. He was quite a good and conscientious MP, aided a lot by his wife, Betty, but he was regarded as being this colossal blowhard, even by House of Commons standards, um, when he went there. <laughs> there was, he just, they could, Labour MPs, he just couldn't stop him talking. And there's one extraordinary thing with it clutching onto his jacket, trying to kind of pull him down. <laughs> and he just, just tried to ignore them. Because he was interrupting, was it Wilson? Uh, he was yes, Wilson waiting to speak? Wilson... Um, made a note, would just kind of amuse himself, although it didn't particularly amuse him, it infuriated him. He would keep tally of how often Maxwell stood up to uh, give a speech or make an intervention. And I can't remember offhand what it was, but it was an incredible number of times. And, and really to teach Maxwell a lesson, um, they gave him this kind of notorious poison chalice, which was to run the House of Commons Catering Committee, which was actually the only position of responsibility Maxwell ever attained in the Palace of Westminster. Uh, but he did restore it against all expectations from... It was making a hopeless loss. And uh, he restored it to profit within, I can't remember, a year or so. I, I mean, really very short space of time, albeit by typically shady, underhand you know, means. Thank you. 
sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on a whim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. And the ambition to become prime minister, to become a political leader, I guess if we were talking 10 years ago, we'd have said, how absurd. I mean, now it almost seems that he he peaked too early. No, no, quite. I mean, yes, and I mean... (laughs) I mean, one of the peculiar things about Maxwell is, you know, in many respects, it's easy to see him as a kind of forerunner of Donald Trump in the terms of, you know, crazed self-aggrandizement. You know, he called his headquarters Maxwell House, had colossal sort of letter M specially woven into the carpets there. Um, And, you know, so, you know, it's not that big a kind of jump from Maxwell House to Trump Tower. So, yes, I'm sure you're right. Now, um, his political ambitions probably would have been taken a lot more seriously. Although I think even over here, I I think possibly he would have been kind of sniffed out. A very similar, well, it seems to me, personality to Trump. Yes, I mean, to what extent Trump has the same yawning insecurities as Maxwell, I don't know. And I think it's, you know, it's going to be a while before we find out. But I think that anybody who has to plaster images of themselves over everything they own and, you know, is constantly be, you know, banging their own drum. They've got to be trying to hide something, I think. His wife, Betty, put down some of his behaviour to, it seems to me, a grotesque understatement, never learned humility. I think it was Peter Jay that you quoted saying, not amoral, but pre-moral, both interesting judgments. Yes, I mean, I think that Peter Jay saw him as this kind of jungle creature, just, uh, you know, um, devouring anyone who crossed his path. And indeed, Maxwell talked about himself in the the same terms, not with any hint of criticism. I mean, you know, it's a very moot point to what sense Maxwell, you know, did Maxwell have a sense of morality? 
it would sort of crop up at odd times. It was never entirely detached from self-interest, but there were times when you felt the the equation tipped slightly. So the self-interest wasn't necessarily as dominant as it might have been elsewhere. And the lecture to his children about, uh, was it show compassion and consideration? Yeah, I mean, you know, he was a very stern Victorian father who did lay down these extremely rigid moral precepts um, as far as his children were concerned. They were rigid moral precepts that he <laughs> didn't follow at all, but he expected them to. And if they didn't, you know, the consequences could be pretty dire. And the behaviour at the mirror was really quite extraordinary. The extent of the bugging and spying that went on, his greed and the relationship with the uh, youngish secretary, all amazing. Yes, I mean, the older Maxwell gets... You have this sense of him sort of clutching with increasing desperation for this thing that uh, he hopes is going to bring him a measure of satisfaction and fulfilment. And of course, you know, it always stays just out of uh, just out of his grasp here. And he becomes more and more paranoid as one of his uh, daughters, Christine, said to me, you know, I really think my father, there's no doubt he had megalomania by the end of his life. He drove everybody away, uh, his children, he treated his wife appallingly. And he's this kind of, in many respects, desperately sad, pathetic figure, vastly overweight, sitting up in, uh, you know, Maxwell Towers with no friends. All he does is just watch old Clint Eastwood and James Bond videos. And gorge himself on takeaways. Oh, yes, the uh, Chinese takeaway for 14 that was just for yes. two of them. <laughs> yes, I mean, you know, I suppose Maxwell predated gastric bands, but I think that, um, <laughs> yeah, well, again, it's a moot point whether you ever would have had one fitted. But, you know, it, it's, it's that sort of, yeah, I think it's that George Orwell thing about, you know, people have the face they deserve at 40. You know, you look at Maxwell and he's in his 20s, an astonishingly good-looking young man. He looks like kind of Robert Taylor, the Hollywood star. And indeed, actually, in his files, the, the Czech Secret Service files on him in uh, in Prague, there's there's a one, one kind of note that says, you know, follow um, this man and everything, he's working for British intelligence. Brackets, looks like Clark Gable. So Maxwell is a very good-looking young man, and then he just becomes this enormous, bloated figure. It resembles, to some extent, the kind of Eastern European dictators that he'd sucked up to by writing, publishing these adulatory biographies of him with kind of, you know, absurdly black-dyed hair. And I think his barber sounds like quite a good source of yours. Yes, I mean, you know, he just becomes a sort of... It's like a sort of figure from an Italian comic opera. And you feel towards the end the walls closing in, broken physically. It feels like before we get to the end, the end is, is coming near. I mean, obviously with hindsight, but do you think he felt that? Yes, I think, I think the kind of critical point, he buys the mirror in 84 and things are, you know, he becomes a laughing stock to some extent because he's put his face all over the mirror, but he's still a, you know, figure to contend with. Uh, in 1988, he pays an insane amount of money for the American publishers, Macmillan. I mean, a billion dollars more than the company's own directors thought it was worth. And really the only reason he does that 
is to try and go toe-to-toe -to -toe with Murdoch in America. Um, and having paid far too much money for it, then there's a recession, interest rates shoot up, and from that moment on, he's frantically, as it were, robbing Peter to pay Paul, shifting money around, but the cracks are starting, starting to widen. And the great sin that he'll be remembered for is, is robbing the mirror pensioners. How did that happen and what was that about? Well, he'd been doing that from pretty soon after he bought the mirror. And, and, and although it's now seen as this kind of act of supreme wickedness, the legality of it was less clear-cut than you might think at the time. I mean, it, you know... It wasn't exactly legal, but it wasn't exactly illegal either. And he'd taken money out of the pension funds to, as it were, tide him over. And he then put it back. And he'd run the pension funds very successfully for a time. And then he, you know, th there comes a point where this kind of frantic round of shoveling money from one place to another starts to, as it were, engulf him. And the hole in the pension funds gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, and he he can't plug it. I, I think that it's it's worth pointing out that Maxwell, for all his sins, wasn't a kind of Bernie Madoff figure who was solely interested in lining his own pockets. I think, and this this is of absolutely no consolation to mirror pensioners, but I mean, I think that had he been able to, he would have paid the money back. But by then, of course, it was too late. And he was proud of being in charge of all this money. Yeah, he was in charge of, he's proud of being in charge of, of everything, really. I mean, you know, he just loved sitting on top of what soon became exposed as, you know, a gigantic house of cards. How did the end come? I mean, your book is called The Fall. He died falling off the boat. Before we get on to what you think actually happened there, yeah. take us through the day when he arrived on the yacht. Well, Maxwell goes on board his yacht, the Lady Ghislaine, named after his favourite child, and he says he wants to just cruise around, rather aimlessly, around the kind of uh, in the Atlantic for a few days. He'd never been on the boat on his own before. There'd always been a kind of retinue of staff, and unusually, he was very well behaved with the staff this time, and he didn't make a fuss, and he ate the same food that they ate, and he seemed to be in very good spirits. But he knew that on Tuesday, November the 5th, 1991, he was going to fly back to London and face what were effectively three firing squads. He knew that the fraud squad was after him, the banks were after him, and the mirror pensioners were after him. And in the early hours of November the 5th, he disappears overboard. And, you know, ever since... The big question is, was he bumped off? Did he jump? Was it an accident? Well, I'll ask that in a moment, but the staff didn't realise that he was missing at first. I mean, it wasn't like sort of splash, there he's gone. No, he, and uh, he'd locked his cabin door from the outside, uh, which was a very unusual thing to have done when he went out on deck at about three o'clock in the morning. Uh, so it wasn't until at about 10 o'clock the next morning that the staff learned to their horror that Maxwell wasn't in his cabin or indeed anywhere else on the boat. And, and the captain uh, was faced with the kind of terrible job of uh, phoning up the uh, mirror and saying, we've lost Mr. Maxwell. 
And they found him after a search and They rescue. found him several hours later, naked, spread-eagled, face upwards, and they had to use a harness that's normally used for rescuing horses and cattle from flood zones to winch him up onto the helicopter because he was so enormous. And one of the reasons there's been such a debate about uh, his death is that there was a hopelessly botched autopsy that was conducted by a Spanish um, pathologist. So whilst it should have been comparatively easy to ascertain the cause of death, because the, the, the autopsy was so botched, uh, there's been some doubt about it ever since. Is there really any evidence at all for the idea that he's mur- he was murdered? No, frankly. I mean, there was, you know, in theory, there was an almost endless queue of people who were kind of, you know, wouldn't have been at all unhappy to uh, to see him bumped off. But it really makes no sense. I mean, you know, why would you go to the trouble of sending a, you know, a bunch of amphibious hitmen out to the middle of the Atlantic to bump off someone who was so addicted to self-publicity, he virtually walked around with a target pinned to his forehead when he was on dry land. I mean, just the logistics of it simply don't make sense. So, you know, that begs the obvious question, you know, you know did he jump or did he fall? And a lot, I mean, Murdoch, for instance, is absolutely convinced that uh, he jumped. Um, and there's quite convincing evidence to suggest that he did jump my suspicion is that if the, the, the line is between uh, accident and suicide may be rather more indistinct than we normally think. And, and my guess is the answer lies along that line. That's an intriguing thought. What do you mean about it's an indistinct line? I think that I think he may have slipped and, and uh, possibly didn't try hard enough to save himself or maybe he did lower himself over the um, the back of the boat and then change his mind. He had very bad tearing on the muscles in his shoulder. Um, but on the other hand, he did lock the cabin door from the outside when he went out, which suggests that he wanted to keep the crew in the dark for as long as possible, that he wasn't in his cabin. And what was the... Uh reaction back home I suppose mixed I remember it provoked a fight in the House of Commons where I was a journalist yes, indeed, yes that's right well I mean you know all, almost all world leaders queued up to uh, pay tri- very very kind of extravagant uh, tribute to Maxwell um, and uh, and yet it was a matter of three four weeks later that it, the, all the news about the hole in the pension funds and uh, came to light and the plight of uh, Maxwell Communications. So you, you've <laughs> this extraordinary situation. So some of the same people who've been singing his praises three weeks earlier and now <laughs> coming on television saying what a dreadful man he was and, you know, they always had their suspicions about him, blah, 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 blah. Um, so, yeah, in Fleet Street terms, it was became known as you know, the biggest reverse ferret of all time. Um, <laughs> and, and you know, and here we are 30 years later with his name as black as ever, really. And as you were writing the book, did your attitudes towards him change, harden, develop? Yes, they certainly did change. I mean, it did seem to me to be such a tragedy, in many respects. And his son Ian told me a story about how quite near the end of his father's life, he went into his father's bedroom in Headington Hill Hall in Oxford and Maxwell had a kind of prototype or sort of early flat screen TV, huge thing mounted on the wall. 
and uh, Ian Maxwell walked in, his father had his nose pressed up against the screen, and there was this a documentary showing uh, uh, of, uh, had footage of Jews uh, being unloaded from trains at Auschwitz and divided into two streams, those who were to be sent straight to the gas chambers and those who were deemed fit for work. And Ian Maxwell said, what are you doing? And Maxwell turned up, straightened up and, and turned around and said, I'm looking for my parents. And, you know, whatever you think of Maxwell... That is a desperately poignant story. Yes, I didn't expect reading the book to feel the same sense of pathos that I got and even a sense of pity for the man. Yeah, I did, because he was plainly so desperately unhappy towards the end of his life. Now, of course, one can argue he caused enormous unhappiness amongst scores of people himself. Um, but, you know, he's, he's left this kind of bloated ruin of a man. And that did strike me as being desperately sad. I've heard the word monster used recently. Was he a monster? I, th- I realise this is a very semantic distinction, but I mean, I think he was more of an ogre than a monster. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, um, I mean... Yes, of course, he was a dreadful man in many respects, but he wasn't entirely lacking in kindness. And uh, quite a lot of people who worked on the mirror talked to me about things he'd done for them, which, you know, with no um, altruistic motive, um, you know, he could be very good to people. The one thing he couldn't do was relate to people on equal terms. He could kind of, he was good at dispensing handouts, but he simply lacked any capacity to have an equal relationship with anyone. And of course, that in itself becomes a recipe for terrible loneliness. I said at the beginning that uh, a couple of your earlier works have provided good entertainment for me during lockdown and for a lot of other people as well. This would make terrific TV, wouldn't it? Well, I hope so. I mean, the rights have been bought by Working Title, uh, who uh, plan to make it into a, into a television series. So, yeah, I hope so. I mean, certainly when I was writing it, I thought, this is like a kind of build-your-own-Citizen-Kane kit, in a way. It is, isn't it? And how would you play it? Because you could play it in one way. You could play it for laughs. I mean, you presumably wouldn't want to yes. do that. Yes. I mean, you know, it is... I mean, you know, whether Maxwell himself had a sense of humour, again, is a moot point. I mean, he certainly had no sense of self-absurdity at all, but people behaved in a very funny way around Maxwell. And the the madness and the absurdity of his kind of quasi-medieval court at the mirror, you know, that is an integral part of him and the way he did business. And the way that people did kowtow to him and did respect that power, yeah. or whether they respected it. Yeah. Put up with it. Yeah. Who would you have playing? Well, I mean, that's it always... I mean, I suppose Russell Crowe. Why? I think he's... It, it needs to be someone who can absolutely dominate a room by force of personality, which Russell Crowe can do. And I feel that he would get both Maxwell's bombast and his occasional wryness very well. Well, I really look forward to seeing that. I'd like to thank John for a great discussion. I'm Mark Waddell, and you've been listening to Intelligence Squared. Mm-hmm.